0: I can't even describe the feeling just so down in the dumps, just upset, just, you know, crying out to God, like God help me help
1: her or help allow this child to make it. That was the voice of Alyssa Baer, my sister and today's guest. As a CRNA, she wants parents to know the importance of asking questions and reminds us to pray for our friends, having medical procedures, no matter how minor they may seem. Today, she's going to share her story of having to make difficult decisions and combating dishonesty while holding to what was right. She says, despite heartbreak and intense stress, she could feel God's constant presence and faithfulness. As a courtesy to the family whose lives were forever affected by this story, we've changed the names to Katie for the mom, and we'll be calling the child Harper. We also want to politely warn our listeners that, for any sensitive ears, this story is emotional and it does discuss heartbreak and loss. Now let's get started because you won't want to miss this powerful testimony. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says this, Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. I am your host, Brittany Simadini, and on today's episode, we're going to take one of his lies and expose it for what it really is, unlocking the truth of what God's word has to say about it. Are you ready? Let's get going. Today I'm talking to Alyssa Baer. She's my blood sister and a registered CRNA. She and her husband, Joe, have been married for two years, and together they have two very loved and spoiled fur babies, Layla and Teddy, which makes perfect sense because you can't have the last name Bear and not have Teddy somewhere in the mix. I'm grateful, Alyssa, that you made the decision to stand for the truth, even at the expense of potentially losing your job. So thank you for being on here today to share what's on your heart, Welcome to the show, Alyssa. Thank you for having me. You are so welcome. You're my very first guest, so this is super exciting. And something I want to do real quick is ask you to give us a fun fact about yourself. Let's see. Um, Well, I love dogs uh,
0: so, so much. And I think one day, I definitely want to foster dogs in the future. We haven't even had a are in kids yet, but uh, one day I'd like to open up a dog shelter in the far, far future, but that would be something I would aspire to do. That
1: sounds like you. If you know Alyssa, <laughs> you know she loves dogs, and she's always looking for different dogs that she can rescue. So that does not surprise me at all. <laughs> so for the listener, I'm going to go ahead and set the stage a little bit, and then I'll let you take it from there. At the time, you were working as an RN, but you were a student in CRNA school. And you were at the hospital that day doing your clinicals, working with pediatric patients in the MRI area, correct? Correct. Um, And then you ran into an old cheerleading friend from high school, and she had brought her toddler in to get an elective outpatient scan. So you briefly spoke with her, um, but you were tied up with another child. But you did tell her that you were going to make sure that her daughter was well taken care of. And then, Alyssa, if you don't mind, go ahead and tell us what happened after that.
0: I was uh, assigned to MRI that day, and typically as a, we call ourselves SRNA, student register nurse anesthetist, we would gain a lot of uh, our pediatric clinical experience in MRI because, you know, typically small children can't sit still in MRI, so they require anesthesia. And there's two ways of providing that anesthesia. You can either Um, do what's called a MAC anesthesia, where it's called monitored anesthesia care, where you um, place a child in the MRI scanner with just an oxygen mask on and administer anesthesia through an IV. Or you can put them all the way to sleep, which is also termed general anesthesia. That requires an endotracheal tube. On this particular day, the anesthesiologist preferred doing a monitored anesthesia care. So all of our patients would enter the scan with an oxygen mask on, and it was our job to assure that they were anesthetized deeply enough that they wouldn't wake up but also in a safe manner where they we didn't take away their ability to breathe on their own that day i had performed all the um, inductions for uh, of anesthesia for all the children that required mris and what that meant was i put them to sleep with the anesthesiologist present and the crna present and then i would take them into the scanner we would hook them up to all their monitors and um, i would just monitor their breathing and titrate their drip based on um, you know their vital signs and whether or not they were moving i could titrate the drip to ensure that they were anesthetized as i said deeply enough so they wouldn't wake up during the scan at the end of the scan we would take them out and uh, recover them in the pacu area of mri and that just means a recovery area so i was with another child and trying to get a blood pressure reading on this particular child while my saw my friend walk in with her daughter and um, she you know I wasn't going to be able to start the induction of anesthesia with that child because I was tied up so the CRNA and anesthesi- an anesthesiologist put that patient to sleep without me present and by the time I wrapped up things with my other patient I went into the scanner and Harper was already on the table with asleep with her monitors on and I asked the CRNA if she would like me to take over, and she told me, you no, know, why don't you go take a break? So that's what I did. So I left the scanner, and I went and took about a 15-minute break, and when I came back uh, into the control room, the center of the MRI department has a control room where the radiology techs sit and perform the scan. So I go into the control room, and there's a monitor in the center, and that monitor shows us all the patient's vital signs. And I'm alerted at the heart rate that I see on the monitor, which is extremely low for a patient um, Harper's age. I become worried and immediately go into the scanner. Technically, you're not supposed to enter the scanner while it's um, in progress because of the electromagnetic force. Um, but you're not supposed to open the door because objects from the control room could potentially enter the scanner and that could be dangerous. But I was just really worried seeing this heart rate, and I knew I had to do something or see if the CRNA needed my assistance. So when I went in there, um, the CRNA had also just noticed the heart rate and assured me that she was going to administer medicine to hopefully correct it. And I asked her if she wanted me to call an anesthesiologist, and she said no. And I assured her that I would be watching from the control room, and I would be Um, within view if she needed me to call anyone or go back into the scanner to help.
1: I'm sure your heart was racing at this point. What
0: did you do? I left the scanner and continued to watch the monitor, and I noticed that the heart rate didn't improve whatsoever. It just continued to drop. Fast forward about three or four minutes later, the heart rate dropped another 10 beats, and at that point, I... Ran into the scanner because I knew that that was just grounds for basically performing um, CPR. And uh, when I went in there, the radiology tech was also at the the head of the bed with the patient and the CRNA. And, you know, I was trying to assess the situation. She asked me to give more medicine to help with the heart rate. And that's when I said, has anyone checked a pulse? Both of them... Said out loud, no, I have not checked a pulse. So that's when we pulled the child out of the scanner and I checked a femoral pulse and I did not feel anything. So at that point, we knew that we were going to have to start CPR. So we took the patient out of the scanner into the area where we could safely uh, perform CPR and intubate, which means just provide a protected airway for the patient. And um, so I initiated CPR and um, the radiology tech called the anesthesiologist. He was there within a matter of a minute or less. We proceeded to go through about six rounds of CPR and successfully uh, got a return of spontaneous circulation, which means that we were able to get a pulse back. But there was obviously concern that this patient had gone without oxygen for an extended period of time and there might be some brain damage. She was at this point intubated so she had a protected airway, but we had performed six rounds of CPR, so there's all sorts of concerns you consider when someone requires CPR. I remember just seeing the fear in my friend's eyes and knowing that I I thought that I was going to be the one taking care of her, but um, I felt a lot of guilt knowing that I couldn't do more because I wasn't actually in the scanner when all this happened, but I was there to
1: help assist once we knew something was terribly wrong. So what were the the following days and the weeks like as you went back to the hospital? What were the emotions you were feeling at that time? Goodness. Um,
0: I remember leaving the day that the incident happened and just feeling like I can't even describe the feeling just so down in the dumps, just upset, just, you know, crying out to God, like, God, help me help her or help allow this child to make it. Um, I remember actually turning to one of the CRNAs that was there to assist in CPR and saying to him at the conclusion of the CPR efforts that, I just didn't think there was any way this child wouldn't suffer, you know, a hypoxic brain injury from going without oxygen for so long. And so it was very hard for me. It's hard to put a word, to use a word to describe how I felt that day because I just felt horrible. Um, I was sad. I went through crying. I went through anger. I went through just total despair really. And um, just, after speaking with the family, not really knowing what to say. I mean, I couldn't even believe that they asked me of all people, the student to be the one to basically tell them what happened. And I kind of let the anesthesiologist speak for me, but I wasn't really present in the scanner. I was just there to assist after seeing her heart rate drop. So there was a lot I didn't know. I had to kind of fit the puzzle pieces together in my own head And so I knew the best way to do that was to go home and to write down everything that happened that day, every detail that I could possibly remember. Because if you're like me, I mean, I can hardly remember what I had for breakfast Mm -hmm. that day, let alone what happened days or weeks or months before. So I wrote down three pages of notes and um, it was just really heavy on my heart. It happened on a Thursday. And so on Friday, I just felt a heavy burden to go tell one of our professors and also one of the CRNAs who worked at the hospital what happened. And I knew that I would probably need to write a clinical occurrence form detailing all the events that happened. And so this particular CRNA slash professor encouraged me to do that and told me that I should reach out to our uh, clinical program director as well. So that's what I did. The following day after the event happened, I went to the pediatric ICU to speak with a mother, my friend, and see how she was doing and see how the patient was doing. And she seemed fairly hopeful that they would try to um, wean her off the ventilator and hopefully get her extubated and um, see how she did with that. So that weekend I just stayed in prayer and was kind of fearful about her condition after all of this. So when I returned on Monday, unfortunately, when I went up to the unit, I I noticed that the family was gathered around Harper's bed crying. And I turned to the nurse at the nurse's station. I said, what's going on? And she goes, oh, you don't know yet. I said, no. They said, well, unfortunately, her MRI didn't show any kind of brain function. And so the parents decided to um, – that it, it was – within the best interest to take her off ventilator support and donate her organs. So that was really, really hard to hear, and I knew that I would not be able to continue clinical that day. There was just no way. I just, it was everything in me to not just sit there and start bawling my eyes out. I left, and I immediately, immediately called my program director, and she was supposed to be I don't think she was giving lecture that day, but I was supposed to attend class that day after clinical. And I just told her there's no way I'm going to be able to attend class today. So I actually went to speak with her in her office and I told her everything. And of course she just was beside herself and I told her every detail and she wanted me to submit a clinical occurrence form and she wanted me to go see a counselor. I agreed to do that. And, um, Unfortunately, I had to go back to clinical the next couple of days, and that was extremely hard. Um, It was everything I could just not to cry, you know, taking care of other patients, knowing that a child died was basically going to be done in your organs within the next couple of days. And, you know, I'm sitting there just trying to grieve and process everything, but also having to take care of someone and ensure that they are safe. And I was just so nervous. And I remember ac- accidentally taking home fentanyl that day. I had so much on my, on my brain that I forgot to return it. And I had to speak with a pharmacist about that later on. But um, my clinical director saw how upset I was, how emotional I was, and ended up giving me two days off of clinical just to gather my thoughts and to grieve.
1: What a blessing. Yeah,
0: that was a great blessing.
1: Yeah, I just hearing you talk, it's just such a heartbreaking story. And I think it's so amazing that this patient was someone that you actually you knew. You knew their family. You'd probably agree was such a godsend that you were there that day to help not just in that immediate situation, but for your friend to have a friend at the hospital that is on her side that's such a special blessing
0: it was it really was and you know that was really the hard thing about it was knowing that you know there was nothing really that i could have done to save her child Um, i did everything i could but i wasn't in the scanner when it when she started decompensating and so I wanted to give her answers, I wanted to reach out to her, and I did reach out to her because I couldn't help myself. And I knew that it was really um, just a kind of an intense situation because I had all eyes on me, and I was in a program that I was hoping to graduate from within a year, and I just had to be very careful. And um, I started limiting the texts I was sending my friend because I didn't want to get in trouble
1: that actually leads me to my next question, because I know as someone going through nursing school, I mean, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of money that you pour into it, a lot of time taking all of these classes. And if you speak up, I feel like if I were in that situation, I would be concerned about uh, if I speak up, am I going to lose my job? You know, what's at stake? And just trying to figure out what... The right thing to do is we know in our heart, if there is wrongful behavior or you know, something that happens and there's dishonesty, as Christians, I feel like we have this duty and responsibility to share the truth, but it, it can be difficult when you have other things that come into play. Yes. Were you ever threatened by higher ups or people in management? To give a different story, did you ever feel like your job was on the line? I
0: definitely faced pressure from the university to not discuss any details about what happened that day with anyone except for the program director of my anesthesia program because I knew there was a very real risk of not graduating. If I did speak about my experience with my fellow classmates or staff at our clinical sites, I knew that in order to graduate, I had to stay quiet. And this was hard to do considering I had people asking me, what happened on a daily basis in the weeks following this horrific tragedy? It wasn't until a lawsuit had been officially filed by my friend's attorney against the hospital and anesthesia group that my program director honored my request to provide me with my own representation because I had asked, you know, I really would like to speak to someone about this in counseling. While effective in some ways, I really just didn't have the time to be sitting down with a counselor every week. I mean, In CRNA school, you aren't allowed to work because you spend five days in clinical, um, sometimes eight-hour shifts, sometimes we would do call shifts that started at 3 p.m. and we didn't get off till 7 a.m. the next day. So it was very, very time-consuming. I mean, you were just living, breathing, eating anesthesia. So really, like I said, once she provided me with my own representation, um, I was able to meet with my attorney through the university was how they provided me, an attorney through the university that they appointed themselves. And I met with him once or twice before graduation. And it wasn't until after graduation that I felt comfortable meeting with both my attorney and my friend's attorney to discuss all the details of that day. So once I had my diploma in in hand, I felt an overwhelming sense of relief that I no longer had to stay quiet and I could finally tell my side of the story. And What was really hard was knowing that the things that were being told by the crna in particular um, some of the things she was saying were not true and i knew that the the downside of this happening in mri is that everything that was recorded that day on paper um, was recorded on paper it wasn't you couldn't see vital signs every single minute because on a paper charting you only document vital signs every five minutes a lot happens in five minutes. From the time I went into the scanner the first time to the second time I went into the scanner, that was under five minutes. And a lot changed in that five minutes, but that wasn't detailed in the paper
1: chart. Alyssa, thank you so much for bringing this situation to light. I know you have so much more to say, and we're going to continue this conversation in the next episode, where we'll hear about your intense deposition in front of multiple lawyers, your peers, and your friend's family. I believe you said the deposition took four years to happen and lasted nine hours. I know you also have an update, so I'm looking forward to next time. For now, as we conclude part one, is there anything you want to add to what's been said today? I really didn't have a lot of fear because I
0: know fear comes from Satan, and I knew that God was leading me this whole time. And I knew that if this ever were to go to court, and I were to give a deposition, everything I would say would be the honest to God truth. I had no reason to lie. I had, there was no reason, um, for me to make myself look, look good or make myself look like a hero. And I certainly wasn't trying to take away licensures of the CRNA or the anesthesiologist, but I did feel like some of the interventions made that day were, uh, not really done promptly. And I would have done other things had I been in that situation, even as a just an RN, an SRNA, I would have done things much differently, especially now that I have all the knowledge that I have. um, I've been a CRNA now for three years. There's there's no way I would have done the things that were done that day that unfortunately were performed. Um, I felt like I owed it to the parents to speak the truth and that's what
1: I did. And this truth will always set you free. Absolutely. Alyssa, thank you so much for being so upfront and honest about your experience. Thank you for your time today.
0: Thank you for having me, Brittany.
1: It can be so easy to get caught up in looking out for ourselves, but in doing so, we often forget that the greater blessing comes from being honest and having integrity. I hope you found this episode to be inspiring and a good reminder that God is your help in every trial. I hope you'll check out part two of this interview to follow soon. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I am so grateful for Alyssa's integrity as she stood up for the truth. I pray that we would all walk in truth and boldness, keeping in mind that the truth will set us free. I pray for the mother, father, and loved ones of this young girl who passed away. I pray that you'd continue to comfort them and all those struggling with waves of grief, difficult loss, and difficult decisions to make. Help us to remember to pray for those who are getting even minor medical procedures or perhaps learning of heartbreaking diagnoses. Thank you for the doctors and nurses that give so much of themselves. And thank you most of all for the hope that we have in you and the blessings you sprinkle in our trials. We love you. We love your son, and it's in his name we pray, amen. If this message has blessed you in any way, or if you know someone that could use the encouragement, please pass it along. And also, I would love it if you would leave me a review, let me know that you're listening, and give me some feedback. Through God's grace-filled word, we can tame the lion got this.